A couple things I wanted to say to you at the outset is uh, there's a couple caveats about this class. Um, try to remember them all. First of all, uh, originally when we thought about this class, it was designed to be first and second Peter. And I got to looking at that and I said, there is no way under the sun. In fact, it's rather difficult even to contemplate doing first Peter in 12 weeks but we will do the best we possibly can. I think you'll see that when you look at this handout and you kind of see a roadmap of where we're going to try to go. Even with what you see there, it'll be necessary to combine a couple of the, of the lessons there so that we have room to get them all in. That means something else, and this is where it kind of gets hard because First Peter is a, a, a beautiful letter in the New Testament. It's in some ways resembles the book of Ephesians. So if you think of what Ephesians was to Paul, and think about some of the theological concepts and the, and the heights to which he soared in the book of Ephesians, and you think about the analog for the Apostle Peter, and it would be in 1 Peter, it really makes it difficult, because even like in a section this morning, there are verses that you could spend the entire lesson on, and we just can't do that. Um, not if we're going to have any hope, whatever, of getting over the, uh, the ground that's here. So I'll ask for your indulgence and your forgiveness from the beginning if uh, there are things you really want to hear, but for some reason I didn't see fit to talk about it. It isn't that I don't, it's probably not that I don't know something about it or having, have not studied something about it. It's um, just sort of a, a discipline to try to keep us moving with this. So that's something to know. Um, where I would like to begin, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into what I'd like to call an introduction, which I think is important for us to spend a few minutes on before we actually look into our first lesson today. Lord, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that where other people have little hope and little to go by, we have living hope, and we have the assurance of the Word of God, which is forever settled in heaven. Therefore, when we come across these wonderful truths that lend stability and foundation to our lives. We thank you that we can know that we're building on a firm foundation. And so I pray that you will bless us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will give me uh, economy in those things that I say, knowing that we can't say everything that we might like to. But I pray also, Lord, that you would help this to be a practical benefit to people. Uh, we're not here just to increase in our facts and figures about the Bible. Good to know those, we realize, but we want to know how those facts pertain to our lives. We want to be able to go away from these times with something that's practical, that's helpful, and that helps us to be more like Christ. So I pray you will guide me here today and bless, especially in this opening Sunday, for I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Now, another thing we're working with here today, so I apologize if occasionally I look behind just to be sure where we are with this, but we don't have the rear projector again, so yeah, we're right where we need to be with this. So let's talk about a couple of things by way of introduction to the book. And again, this is going to be a sort of a synopsis of other things that you could spend more time. Far as who wrote First Peter is concerned, you know, for a conservative Bible-believing Christian, we really don't have to look past verse number one, where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That settles it for us. And so whatever you know about Peter, from your study of the New Testament. This is the person that we're talking about. And to whom is Peter writing? So that would be the recipients of the book. And here's the important thing today to say. Clearly, he's writing to Jewish believers. You can't really get away from that because look at verse number one again, and it says, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Well, the moment you see that term dispersion, the ESV seems fit, sees fit to use that actual translation. It, it's kind of a literal translation, actually, because the, the word in the original language is the, 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 the diaspora, and you probably know that term. We kind of bring that over into the dispersion. Well, who were those people? Well, they were Jewish exiles. And there's a sentence, we, we don't really necessarily know how those people got to those places, but there's a spiritual counterpart to talking about someone being a stranger and an exile. And Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And so we know that there's a spiritual sense in which it may be literally true that someone is an exile and someone who was originally an inhabitant of Israel, Palestine, is now living in a different place by virtue of this is not their native land and they went there for various reasons, perhaps fleeing from persecution, this, that, or the other, who knows. But we know that we're strangers and exiles here, and Peter brings that out later in chapter 2. We'll talk about that at the time. You also have, um, when, when Peter mentions in verse 2, to those who are the exiles of the dispersion, um, it is kind of interesting, too, because if you go back to the book of James, and I'll just read this for you, don't have the verse here, but when James is writing, he says something very similar. He says, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So once we consider that and see that, there's, there's absolutely no question that believers, Jewish believers, are uh, in, the, in the mix, greatly in the mix with what Peter is thinking about the audience to whom he writes. But I think if we stop there, I think we probably make a mistake. I think there are a lot of things that are said in the book that give away the fact that these people in these churches this is very much true when Paul went to these various places, too. You, you would have, he would go to the synagogue first, and you would have, obviously, Jewish believers there, but you would also have people there who were uh, proselytes, who were, were, were Gentiles, and I think Gentiles are in the mix. A lot, of, a lot of statements that Peter makes don't make sense unless you take this into consideration. So one example of this is in chapter 2. Again, I, I'm, I'm trying to be brief with this, but... But when you look at what he has to say in chapter 2, verse 9, when, and he's addressing his audience, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Really, when you think about this, this is very much akin to what Paul told the Ephesian audience in chapter 4, where God has called you out of this darkness. You were strangers. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And so we have a mix in the group of people. Let's see if we did any good with this. Yes, okay, so look up on there, and we have a map. And uh, so he's writing to the elect believers of the dispersion, people who are scattered, which is the idea behind this, and he's writing to these people who are in Roman provinces in what today is Turkey, or we might say Asia Minor. So when you look at this map, I think this thing has a, yeah, okay. So when you look at this map, right here would be where Palestine is. Then when you start moving north, you have Syria. Over here is what today is Turkey. So when you're thinking about Bible geography, this is what you have in mind. Now, so look at it. So you have Asia, Roman Asia is there. You know more about that than maybe you think you do because Roman Asia would be where uh, the seven churches to which 
the book of the Revelation is written, those letters there in chapter 2 and 3, those are all there. And you can see Ephesus right there on the map. Um, but we also have Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, and Galatia. So five of them are mentioned. So this is the audience. This is where they live. These are people who are believers. He mentions that they're scattered. Let's go to our next slide because we also want to say just a quick word about the date and place of writing. Um, I believe that Peter wrote this epistle from Rome, and we'll use the date of AD 65. Much of what I'm giving you here is pretty much standard, but when you look at the standard presentation, I, I say that only because I don't want you to think that I wouldn't deviate if I thought there were a reason to. But one of the reasons that it's pretty much the standard presentation is because that pretty much reflects what uh, is the thinking and finding of, of conservative biblical scholarship. And this is important when you think about 1 Peter to know this, where he's writing from and what time he's writing. And one of the reasons is because Rome burned in AD 64. So if we have this right, this is a year before. And you know about this, right? I mean, there's all the, there's all the uh, stories about Nero being there in Rome and fiddling while Rome burned. And I don't really know that you can support that, but that's at least a, a, a point of people have heard that. So we think about that. But what's more important is what Nero did with it. And I guess like all politicians, when something happens that isn't good, you need someone to blame, right? And by definition, you don't blame yourself, and you don't take responsibility. So one of the scapegoats that Nero used was the Christians. And of course, thus began what we would call the Neronian persecutions. So this is kind of important. So those persecutions broke out in AD 65. Now, why do we think that Peter was in Rome? A lot of reasons. Um, this is the interesting verse to talk about. So if you want to flip over to chapter 5, verse 13, this is one of those verses that we could spend a lot of time on. We won't, but I will tell you at least the things that, that might be of interest. So look at how the ESV renders it. It says, she who is at Babylon is likewise chosen, sends you, uh, who likewise is chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So you say, well, you got it wrong on the very first Sunday. He says he's in Babylon. <laughs> but what does he mean by Babylon? Well, there was a strong Jewish representation in the, in the traditional Babylon that you know of, but no record that Peter was ever there. No association of Mark in that place who was with him. But we have buku amount of material historically that associates both Mark and Peter with Rome. In fact, Rome is where Peter met his end, probably just a couple of years after he wrote this epistle. You have second Peter that has to be taken care of before that happens, but you know, he talks about his departure in this book. And so he, he's envisioning this as not being too distant. And if you really want to be precise or, or try to cover all the bases, there's actually a, a rendition of Babylon, a place that was called Babylon, a literal place in Egypt, but that's even more remote in terms of identifying anything with Peter. Whereas here's something really intriguing that we know. Babylon kind of became code speak with Christians who had a way of identifying to other Christians precisely what they were talking about, but left it a little bit less than clear with somebody who might be reading the letter that they did not necessarily want to give too much information away to. 
So why would you come up with Babylon as a place for this? Well, think about what you know about Babylon in the Bible. Think about Babylon in the Old Testament. Then leapfrog all the way over from the initial chapters of Genesis where we run into Babylon. I'm asking you to think about what it stands for. Think about that and leapfrog all the way over to the book of the Revelation. So you, know, you cover the whole thing. Then think about what you have sort of, I won't say in the middle, but roughly something like that in Isaiah. You think about all these things that we know about Babylon, and the reformers, of course, were convinced that the references to Babylon, mystery Babylon, and all of that in the book of the Revelation were references to Rome. And I'm not going to get into that discussion with you. I'm just telling you what the Christians thought. But when you think about what, and this is the operative point, when you think about what Babylon stood for from a biblical perspective in terms of symbolism, I really love the way Alan Stibbs phrases this. I think he captures it very well. He has a brief commentary on 1 Peter that's a good one, in fact, when he says Babylon is the world center of organized godless, godlessness. So it was a ready-made symbol. It was ready-made cryptology, code speak for Christians, and I think this is probably what Peter is talking about here. So therefore, we'll take the position that Peter was in Rome, that he was writing to people from Rome, that it was the year roughly 65 and a couple of years shy of when Peter um, actually died as a result of these persecutions. So occasion and theme. Yeah, good. Um, so this will be all we do. This is where we'll sort of finish up. These are the standard topics to cover in any introductory material. So 1 Peter, will say, was written to encourage and exhort believers in view of suffering. I give you some references there, but you have the handout, so you don't have to, to worry about not listening or getting distracted by trying to write them down. They aren't complete, but they're meant to show you that how this, this subject permeates the book. And so let me just say something by way of outset, because it, 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 it meshes with something I said, I think, in my prayer, but it was actually something that I, I wanted to mention by one of the opening caveats. The burden that I have for you and for me in this series is not just to come do an exposition. I'll do that work. Um, but what I really want to do is teach you the book as best I can with the time I have, but leave you with a message. So for me, it's not wrong if somebody comes up and says, the theme of Peter is suffering. It's not wrong. And it's helpful in the sense as far as it goes. It gives me some insight into what the book is about. And I think you can sustain that pretty easily by looking at the content and, t uh, content and looking at the references to suffering. I'm just going to say it's not as helpful as I would like it to be. What about suffering? It's helpful to know 1 Peter is about suffering. It's more helpful to me to know what Peter wants to say, what the Holy Spirit wants to say to me about suffering. Because as we're going to talk about, suffering is sort of a fact of life, and it's here, and you can't really avoid it. You can dodge it for a time, but sooner or later it will find you. And it comes in various forms. So the important thing is not just to know there's a place in the Bible. It's good to know this. You say, oh, there's a place in the Bible to go? You could go to the book of Job. But again, the, the, to me, the important question is, okay, great, I've got a book that talks about suffering in the Old Testament. What's it tell me? That's what I really want to know. What's the point of Job? Come to 1 Peter. What's it tell me? What's the overall point that's going on? So 
I would like to use the theme of sufficiency in suffering. Um, and you'll find, as I've noted here below in the outline, I think we can go to that next, that the thesis statement that I'd like to make about this is that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. Well, now I've told you something, I hope, that is helpful. Because when suffering comes my way, what resources do I have to deal with it? The world doesn't have very many resources, at least not ones that hold up. Do I, as a Christian, have resources to cope with suffering? And the answer to that is yes, because I have Christ, and Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient in all things, but this book particularly portrays his sufficiency in suffering. So let me show you a road map. So we start off and in chapter 1, verse 1 through, this is where we're headed, Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen. If the rapture happens and any of you are still here, you have my paper. I'm not planning to be here if the rapture happens, but his salvation sustains us. So Christ is our sufficiency because his salvation sustains us. So we're going to be talking about Christian salvation from chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And how does Christian salvation prove that Christ is sufficient in suffering? It sustains us because it affords us a living hope. That's our first lesson today. It affects a new birth, and it gives us a Savior to look to. Now, thirdly, Christ is sufficient in suffering because his example guides us. Now, this is the section where we're going to have to double up a time or two if we're going to come out at the end at the right place. And you've got all this on your outline. There's no reason to have to read this. And finally, Christ is sufficient in suffering because his humility inspires us. So let me just stop. That's all I'm planning to do with this, but I want to get into the lesson but I will stop and say, have I raised any question that anybody would like to ask at this point? We don't have a lot of time for this, but at the same point, I don't want you to go out of class and say, well, he talked the whole time, never gave us a chance to ask a question. I'll just cut you off at a certain point if I don't think we have, we're running out of time. That wasn't meant to discourage you. Okay, so let's move to the other side of the paper. I believe that's where you'll find um, our first lesson for today. And, yeah, okay, good. So, we're talking about suffering, and we're making the point that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. And I alluded to this a few moments ago, but think about this for a few moments. We introduced the letter and said that the topic of the book is suffering, and that the message of the book is that Christ is sufficient in suffering. What kind of suffering were these people going through? Well, predominantly, I won't say exclusively, predominantly what we're thinking about is suffering that results as, is the result of persecution. Folks, I just want to say to you, you know, we have been very fortunate in this country that we haven't experienced a great deal of this, although for the last 20 years I've been saying this to people, we're seeing the storm clouds gather on the horizon. And I don't know how conversant you are with the news, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't do much with it at all because it's rather discouraging. But it wasn't too terribly long ago. It's been within the last two weeks, and it may have even been within the last week. Uh, but there was a story in the news about, I believe uh, he is the, the uh, Secretary of the Health and Human Services, Bacara, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, from California, that the person that's in that position, and how he was trying to rescind religious protections. I don't know if you saw that story in the news. 
But folks, that's just one. I mean, anymore you're seeing it all the time. We're all, and, and it's kind of interesting that together with that, we're also seeing quite a rise of anti-Semitism. That's also been in the news recently, and you know, it floats around in the news all the time. To me, I don't know about you, but to me, okay, I, you know, I've lived for 67 plus years. Some of this is a little shocking. Well, it is in one sense, it's not in another. But that's not the way I grew up. That's not the America I grew up in. But we're seeing it. And I have to remind myself, well, you know, if, if, if what I think the Bible teaches about last times and eschatology and all of those things is true, well, what does Paul tell me in 2 Timothy? He says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So I have to expect that it's going to be this way. And I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit, I had, a, I had quite a consternation in my soul in November of last year. Well, I guess I should say two years ago now, because now we're in 22. But when I saw the outcome of all of that and saw the people who were going to be in power and what they stood for and what their platforms are, you know, I, I had a problem like Habakkuk had a problem. I looked at that and I said, how can, Lord, I mean, I know our former president's not necessarily a Sunday school teacher, but at the same point, people ask the question, why did many evangelicals like him? Now, there are plenty that didn't. But they couldn't understand why evangelicals liked him if, if it was relatively well known that he had been a womanizer and used bad language and these types of things. And the person who wrote this article, I thought, hit the nail on the head by saying, because they, they know he's not our enemy. And at least you went to bed at night and didn't worry about the fact somebody was coming for your firearms and somebody was coming for your Bibles. But we're not too sure anymore, are we? And it, it, it just is a, a frightening time to live in when you realize that persecution can come and that can be a form, but you can also have suffering that comes from other things. I, I want to ask you this morning, think about mental anguish. I sometimes wonder if that's not worse, really, than the other. There, there are just so many different ways that people suffer. And so we really need this message that's in this book, that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. And so what we're seeing then is ask the question, how is this so? And the thing that we want to talk about this morning in this first lesson is because within the context of Christian salvation, we are afforded, Christian salvation affords us a living hope. You might be listening and you might be saying, why does he keep saying Christian salvation? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a distinction between what Christianity offers and has and what other religions offer and have. It's not the same thing. No one else has what Christianity has. No other group of people in the world have what Christianity offers. No one else has a living hope. And that's a, that's a thing that is a tremendously comforting and sustaining truth in times of suffering. I hope you will cover the ground and point that out to you this morning. We're going to make several statements as we look at this opening. How is it then that this Christian salvation with, uh, affords us a living hope? What does it have to say about salvation? I'm going to make three statements about it in the lesson this morning. It was conceived in eternity, but it was secured in time. And finally, that it is forever settled. So 
let's have a look at this. Now let's, let's go ahead and read our verses, and then we'll come back and, and look at these points. It's hard to, hard to read. Oh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm still got Second Peter there. It, it said Simeon Peter, and that about threw me. How many people go around saying Simeon Peter? Simon. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's your phrase, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are kept by God's power, or who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, so that now is the third time that we've encountered a reference in these ten verses to salvation, Christian salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through the, those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, things the angels desire to look into. Conceived in eternity. When the Sanhedrin considered Peter and John, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Why? Because, as the King James phrases it, they were unlearned and ignorant men. Well, you need to study those words out a little bit because if you come away, to us ignorant today has kind of a negative connotation. If you come away with the idea that Peter was just some sort of a country bumpkin, you definitely have taken the wrong inference from the meaning of those words because they just mean this, private on the one hand and uneducated on the other hand. Now, Uneducated can also have a little bit of a negative connotation to us because we think, well, you know, someone should be educated. It just meant in that context that Peter didn't have the benefit of things like what Saul had, formal rabbinic training. None of it goes to make the point that Peter was some sort of an illiterate who could throw a fishing net but little else. No, in fact, when you read this letter, in fact, this is one of the reasons that some liberals, and now I'm straying back, 
This is one of the reasons, although most of them don't, but one of the reasons some liberals have questions about the authorship of 1 Peter by Peter because the Greek in this letter is of such a, a high level and the content theologically is of, is of such a high level that they struggle with the idea that Peter, as an unlearned and ignorant fisherman from Galilee, could have possibly written this. That's why they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. And of course, we know that Luke chapter 24, that he opened the scriptures to them, explained all of these things to them. We know of his post-resurrection ministry in which he was with them. Wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall in some of those Bible lessons? I mean, to have heard that exposition of the Old Testament, where he expounded in the scriptures. They all he had was the Old Testament. The things concerning himself in all the different parts of the Bible. So these men, and, and then of course you have the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit's all of a sudden bringing back to their minds all these things that Jesus taught them. So these fellows, they, you know, they, they, um, they knew right where they were coming from. And Peter doesn't waste any time with this. So take a look at some of the concepts that are in this verse. He says in verse number one, elect. Now, there's a whole lot of verbiage after that, so I'm going to kind of give it to you the way the King James does because the way the King James links the thoughts makes them, I think, just maybe a little easier to follow. When it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. See, you need to connect elect in verse 1b with all of the stuff that starts happening in verse number 2. Elect according. Now, look, folks, we could spend the whole time on these verses. A lot of people are really interested in a subject like this, and it makes a lot of people antsy. When you start talking about election, people get worried. They're, they're worried that somehow you're going to um, say there's no such thing as human responsibility, or worse, that you're going to say that we don't have any responsibility to, to evangelize because it's all just predetermined. Both of those are straw men. Both of those are straw men. And there's a third, really, that's added to that, is they say, well, if you talk about these things, if you believe these things, they just puff you up and make you a proud Christian. If so, you don't understand them properly, and that's a third strong man, straw man. So let's see what he has to say. Right away, do you notice, he, he, he mentions one of the most lofty theological concepts in the Bible. When he's talking about salvation, he mentions that those who are saved are elect, they're chosen by God. He mentions the work of the three members of the Trinity. Right? Do you see this? It's in accordance with the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's in or through the sanctification of the Spirit, and it has a, a logical outplay, a goal. It's unto or force obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So it comes all the way from something that you can't even really conceive. It comes all the way from eternity past. What's that? I don't know. It's before time. And I don't have really a way to understand that except to know that God is an eternal being and that God saw all of this in his mind, planned it so that in time it would be put into effect. And it's mind-boggling when you think about the fact that in eternity past, you mean to tell me that God saw everyone that he was going to create, and more particularly, he saw you, and he saw me, and he determined to set his grace upon us and make us objects of his mercy. 
If that makes you proud, something's wrong with you. That should humble you. To think that somehow God sees the teeming billions and decided for you. Really? I think he got a bad deal when I look in the mirror. But I'm glad I, I'm not doing that. I'm glad to, to understand a little bit of it. So all of this is in accordance with this majestic plan that was in the mind of God in eternity past. As you move into how it actually starts to function and work, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the conviction. We won't get into all the different aspects of this, but the Holy Spirit is the one who sets us apart. And what does he set us apart to? He sets us apart to obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Look over in chapter 1 a little bit later. We didn't read this verse, but look in chapter 1 uh, later. Let's see what verse we want here. Um, Verse 22 mentions obedience. If you're wondering what that concept is, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So what is it that God has mapped out for us that in the process of time, and we're going to look at more of this in a minute, but in the process of time as this Holy Spirit works and people came our way with the knowledge of the gospel and we heard it, our ultimate destination is to obey Jesus Christ in the sense that we submit to him and put our faith and trust in him and are cleansed by his precious blood and thereby our salvation is secured. So it's conceived in eternity. Some people, I, I, all right, I'll say this and if you have a question about it, we can talk afterwards. I understand this is a subject that, that not all Christians are completely, but Years ago, when I first started out with this, I often heard an explanation of elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was a way of getting around what seems to be obvious. And so that made some people more comfortable and you could kind of dispense with this and, and not really worry about it anymore because you just, you just sort of answered their question. I don't think it's intellectually honest or, or biblically accurate. but. What the statement is, is that just because someone knows something beforehand doesn't mean they cause it to happen. So the way you put that is foreknowledge is not causative. Does that make any sense to you? It's also a bag full of nothing but air. Because that's not really the concept in the Bible. Would you really apply that way of thinking to chapter 1, verse 20? What does God's foreknowledge really involve? It says of Jesus Christ, he was foreknown. Same thing. He was foreknown. So, folks, look, God, God has this lofty plan that is in his heart in eternity past, and it does not, it's not divorced from his intention to carry it out in time. It's not like God just kind of thought, well, you know, if I need a Savior, Jesus could be the one. All of this was foreknown in the sense that God planned and determined these things. So this is just amazing truth. Now what happens, uh, let's see how far we are on this. Um, so Peter dives right in, Christian salvation is neither insignificant, this is kind of what I've been trying to say, nor concocted by man. When we talk about Christian salvation, I told you I'd be trying to draw this contrast. So when you think about what the religions of the world around us are saying, nobody else has this. Nobody else has an eternal God who maps out from the beginning 
this lofty plan of salvation and then not only conceives of it in his mind, but in time brings it to pass. Nobody else has that. So it's neither insignificant nor concocted by man. And secondly, we can also make the statement instead it was an elaborate and eternal plan involving the work of each person of the Trinity. And as I say here, no other religion can make such a claim. All right, how, do, how is this actually, how does this actually, how is this actually secured in time? Well, again, forgive me, but we're going to have to glide. Okay, this is, this is kind of like a hovercraft approach. And I apologize, because there's a lot of verses here. But in time, God began to tell of this salvation in the Old Testament. This is what you have in verses 10 through 12. So we'll sort of move around for the thoughts in the verses. The prophets prophesied. So what it says in verse number 10, right? It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, which in this context is the Old Testament, prophesied. They prophesied about this grace that was to be yours. They searched and inquired diligently. They were curious because they couldn't quite figure out who or what was going on when they bumped into prophecies that talked about the glories of the kingdom, but at the same point, passages like Isaiah 53 where you have the suffering servant. How do you, how do you bring these concepts together? And it was revealed to them, it says, that they weren't ministering. Now, here's something interesting for any of our deacons, Kevin, I see you in the room, but they were, this is the word for deacon, diakoneo. They were ministering. I like that translation a little bit better because it brings us back, but they were serving not themselves. They were ministering these things to us because here's where the direct applicability is. So during the Old Testament, God began to tell of his salvation in the Old Testament scriptures and through his prophets. Now, in the Christian dispensation, what do we see? Well, he sent Christ. That's what we just saw in verses 2 and 3. He sent the Holy Spirit. And we have more about that down in verse 12, where it says here, it is, uh, was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you in the things now announced to you through those who preached the gospel, the good news, uh, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So you have Christ being sent into the world to accomplish the work of the cross because we have this obedience unto the sprinkling of the blood. That's an Old Testament concept of cleansing, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the salvation is accomplished when Christ comes into the world. He sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to empower the work of his witnesses and to empower the message in the hearts of those whom he calls. And so then we have a third thing because, well, we have, I guess it's here. Then he sent people to proclaim it, which is mentioned in verse number 12. So you have those who preach the good news to you, which is a good translation because it's actually, it's actually the Greek word for evangelize. So he sends people to evangelize. Now, you know, in this context, you may be thinking of kind of more like official people, but you know, folks, that's you and me. He sends people to evangelize. So all of this wasn't by happenstance. When I think about my own situation, and I don't really have time to talk about it, but when I think about my dad's decision to move from the city out to a place that we had about 20 miles from the city, and I know what his reasons were at the time, but I look back on it now and I see what God was doing because we had Christian neighbors. The only neighbors we had, they were Christians. They started witnessing to us. If I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have had a direct witness in my life. All I would have had was how I grew up in the Presbyterian church, 
and learned the catechism. And I'm not saying there weren't people in that church who knew the gospel, but it was by and large an apostate church. You didn't hear the gospel from the pulpit. Well, I look back on that now and I say, God orchestrated that. Because God already knew that he had somebody planned to talk to me about this. And that's what's going on here. It's exciting to be used in that way. And I, to this very day, I thank God for those people. People that were humble people, but people that were bold enough to risk talking to two proud young men, my brother and myself, about Christian salvation. And then they, all of a sudden, so these people come to believe. Then they find out something, as it says in verses 6 and 7. How long do you think the honeymoon lasts? I mean, there is one, right? When you first get saved, you're just happy and filled with all sorts. Oh, this is wonderful. But in time, you find out that there can be suffering and there can be trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. So this is our first reference. It doesn't say suffering, but this is what it's talking about. The trials that came to them as a result of these persecutions. I like the King James Version, heaviness. You're in heaviness. A lot of things in life are heavy. I like that. But in this, they could have joy. And why could they have joy? And the key reason is it's because Christian salvation affords a living hope. What would we do without hope? And I don't, I don't have time here. I, I keep saying that. I thought maybe I'd have five more minutes if I quit saying that. But you've seen these pictures before. And it's based, a lot of them are like a snowy evening, and you can just envision being lost. I don't know if anybody here has ever been lost before in the woods. I have, I won't say lost, lost, but lost in the sense that I was plenty unnerved because I, I didn't quite know how to get back. And then all of a sudden you come around a little place in the path or whatever, and this is what the artist is typically showing you in the picture. You see there off in the distance a house. And what makes the whole picture is the house has a light on. There's a light in the window. What's that light a symbol for? It, translate, it transforms the whole problem into one of hope. I'm lost, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm unnerved, but I see a house and there's a light on. That's where we are in this world, folks, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'm going to tell you another little story because time's going to run out on us, but 1975, I was in Israel on a study tour. And so we covered Israel pretty thoroughly because I think we had two weeks for Israel. We were in Haifa. Haifa is Israel's third largest city. And if you were to see from a distance or look down aerially, you would see quite a, quite a building there. Almost like if you looked at Jerusalem, you see the Dome of the Rock. That, you can't miss that. It stands out. Well, when you went to see this building, it was part of the tour, you know what it is? Haifa is the world headquarters of the Baha'i faith. I don't know how many people have heard of the Baha'i faith. It's not Christianity. But anyway, so you go up there and they give you all this spiel about the prophet Baha'u'llah. And then if you want to go inside, you have to take your shoes off. I figure, well, you know, I didn't travel all this distance to argue with the guy, so take your shoes off. Go inside, and what do they show you? Where he's buried. But when you go to Jerusalem, 
and they take you to the garden tomb. The tomb is empty. You've seen pictures of this before. It's, it's, they don't show you where he's buried. They show you where he was buried. And this is the whole difference, folks, between coming around that bend, lost, unnerved, concerned, hungry, and tired, and not seeing anything when you, thinking that you've got something when you see that little hunting shack or something off in the distance, and it's dark, and you're disappointed. And coming around that bend and seeing it with a light on. It just, it breathes hope. Christ is our sufficiency in salvation because we have a living hope. And I, I don't have time for the last, but let's just have a look at this real quick before we have to close. But it's settled forever. So Christian salvation also sustains us because it's forever settled. Just look quickly at this and we'll close. Who by God's power are being kept, verse 5, guarded through faith, to an inheritance, verse 4, that is incorruptible, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. So. It, when I say it's settled forever, think about this. Our inheritance is settled forever. Our salvation is settled forever because God is, God is doing both. God is securing the one in heaven and us on earth. So when people ask you if you have assurance of salvation, and is that, a, is that legitimate for you to have? Yeah, you know what, because it doesn't depend on you. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So as I go through life, and I read different things. I got this one for you from just this morning. It wasn't even a part of my original, but I couldn't, I couldn't resist. You know, the, these op-ed articles are appearing in the papers, the mainstream media now, about 2022. And here's the wisdom of the world, fear and confusion looking forward to another year of fear, fear and confusion. Here's what an MSNBC op-ed article about 2022, here's one paragraph. On the surface, the source of this anxiety is clear. We are facing another round of news headlines warning us of new COVID strains like Omicron. We're struggling with ambiguous timelines around returning to the workplace, and many of us feel like we have no ability to plan for the future anymore and our symptoms, brain fog, exhaustion, lack of sleep, and overall burnout seem pretty clear too. Boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? But this is the world we're in. We can't change that, except that Christians are different. Because nobody's going to take away from you what you have. Paul said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to skim around some of these verses and talk about some of these truths. Let them be a blessing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.